will you pray with me? Oh God, we praise and thank you for this morning. We thank you for being present here with us. We thank you for the God that you are. And God, we just sang, when we call on you, you change things. And God, we want to be a changed people today. So we ask that you are present here with us. We ask that um, for Troy and I, we ask that our words and the meditations of our heart are acceptable in your sight, God. May we be your mouthpiece and may we all have open hearts to hear it is what you want to say to us today. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So um, this year, PT has been taking a hard look at biblical justice. And the definition of justice that we have been using is removing every obstacle and creating every opportunity for individuals and societies to become everything that God has created them to be. Today, we're going to talk about biblical justice specifically within the context of families. So our scripture for today comes from Exodus 2, verses 1 through 10. But actually, before we read it, I want to give you a little bit of context. So at the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus, the Hebrews, who also are known as the Israelites, have been welcomed into Egypt. There was a famine, and Pharaoh said, you can come here and live here with us. As the generations passed, the population of Hebrews grew and increased, The pharaohs changed, and eventually the new pharaohs started getting a little nervous. This people group is growing. We don't want them to have too much power. What if they join our enemies and, you know, fight against us? As people in power often don't like to lose their power. So eventually the pharaoh decided we're going to enslave the Hebrews. They're all slaves from now on. But no matter how brutal the Egyptians were and how terribly they treated the Hebrews, the Hebrew population continued to prosper and expand. So the Pharaoh took a more drastic step. He called the Hebrew midwives and he said, okay, here's what you're going to do. I want you to, when you deliver a baby, if the baby is a boy, you will kill it. But if the baby is a girl, you will let it live. He did not see girls as any kind of a threat. To that, I say, Pharaoh, 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 never underestimate the power of women. So the Hebrew midwives were God-fearing women. They had no intention of following Pharaoh's directive, so they let all the babies live. Population continued to increase. Finally, Pharaoh got fed up, and he told all the people, okay, everybody, you're killing the Hebrew baby boys, you're letting the girls live. And that is where we find our scripture today. So again, this is Exodus 2, 1 to 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, She took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh 
came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Amen. Well, this passage is commonly referred to as the birth of Moses because later on in life, Moses turns out to be kind of a big deal. You know, he grows up to become Charlton Heston and star in a bunch of historical epic films produced by the Paramount Pictures Corporation. That was actually a joke. Of course, Harry, Moses is not an actor. He is a real person who will eventually tell a very real Pharaoh to let his people go and thus set off the chain of miraculous events by which God set the Hebrew people free from slavery. But as we see, this passage tells about much, much more than just Moses' birth. It tells of how he was born, loved, and cared for by his mother, abandoned, rescued, reunited with his family, and ultimately named. It isn't just about Moses. I mean, sure, Moses is involved, but he doesn't actually do very much. No, the central figures in this saga are actually three women. We have the Levite woman who has a son, a baby boy, and through circumstances beyond her control, she cannot provide a safe environment for him on her own. A woman who has to make a difficult choice, unsure of how it's going to turn out. And then we have Pharaoh's daughter. She has pity on the child and adopts him. And in doing so, she rescues him from a death sentence. She didn't have the power to reverse her father's decree, but she uses the power and authority that she has to work for justice. She welcomes him into a new culture and also affirms his culture of origin by making sure that he has a nursemaid from his own people. And then we have the third woman in this story, the Levite woman's daughter. She held things together. If she had not stayed to watch, the Levite woman may never have been part of Moses' later life. If the daughter hadn't been looking out for her baby brother, this might have been a much more tragic story. So the main protagonists of this story are three women and a baby, which might sound like the title of a bad 1980s movie, but is in fact a description of Moses' family. This is a passage about a family. It's probably not the family that any of these women expected, but it's the family that God had planned for them. A family that would change history. And this isn't just their story, it is our story, because God is a God of family. And through Christ, we are all invited to become members of God's forever family. You see, at the beginning of Genesis, God creates Adam and Eve saying, let us make humankind in our image according to 
our likeness. Even in the beginning, God had community. God is an us. Now, some believe that here God was referring to the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Others think God was referring to the heavenly host. But, but either way, God is part of a we, and humankind is created in God's image, created to be part of a we. And that we is God's family. And this Exodus passage teaches us three things about what it means to be part of God's family. The ABCs of God's family, if you will. Uh, Because God's family is about acceptance, it's about belonging, and it's about community. Acceptance, belonging, community, ABC. I would like to insert that in this sermon called Family Matters, the acronym that Troy actually wanted to use was Urkel, but we couldn't quite get that to fit in. Um, But anyway, back to the ABCs. A for acceptance. So God wants, as Trey said, God wants everyone accepted into his family. Nobody is left out. It starts with Adam and Eve, who are created in community to steward God's creation. From there, families develop, generations continue, and throughout it all, God continually tells his people, everyone belongs. This is especially true for the marginalized. There are 35 verses in the Bible where God tells his people to stand up for and look out for the orphans, the widows, and the foreigners. Now, I would like for you to think for a minute, what is it that those three groups have in common? Orphans, widows, and foreigners. They've all lost their people. Through some circumstance, often painful, they have, they have lost or been distanced from the people that they care about. But God does not want that to be the end of their story. Listen to this verse from Psalm 68, it's verses five and six, and I'm gonna read it from the Passion Translation. To the fatherless, he is a father. To the widow, he is a champion friend. The lonely, he makes part of a family. The prisoner, he leads into prosperity until they sing for joy. This is our holy God in his holy place. But for the rebels, there is heartache and despair. God is actively pursuing the fatherless, the prisoner, the lonely. Nobody gets left out. But it's not just him who's working. He calls us to work as well. So listen to this verse from James 1.27. True spirituality that is pure in the eyes of our Father God is to make a difference in the lives of the orphans and widows in their troubles and to refuse to be corrupted by the world's values. So notice that God is clear about what he will do, but he is also calling us to partner with him in that work. God tells us that no one is to be left out, especially those that are facing life by themselves. And we see this kind of radical acceptance play out in the Exodus passage that we read at the start of, at the start of this time. Moses 
wasn't technically an orphan. In modern terminology, Moses' situation was closer to what we would call foster care. Foster care is a temporary family situation whose ultimate goal is either reunification with the birth family or adoption. And Moses' situation was unique because he was both adopted and reunified with his birth family. Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on him as a baby and adopted him. But his sister and mother continued to look out for him and nurse him and make sure that he knew that he was part of their family too. And in the midst of all this, I got to pause. And I have to ask my brothers, where was Moses' dad? I mean, it's not like he's dead or something. I mean, he's right there in verse 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. But beyond that, in the hour of need, Moses' father does just two things for his son, diddly and squat. I mean, his wife got, was building a waterproof basket. His daughter looked out for her baby brother. Pharaoh's daughter, who wasn't even chosen, had compassion on him. And where was this man from the house of Levi? I mean, at the very least, if my son is getting pushed, put in a basket, I got to think I'm going to help build it. I mean, I'm going to get out my power tools. I might put some ground effects on that thing. And, you know, true story, I, I did have an idea for a demonstration here. I was going to build, I'm, I had this idea to build a hovercraft out of reeds. And I know you can picture it right now in your mind's eye, Moses hovering over the waters, just like, just like baby Yoda. And so I drew up some plans and I talked to my wife and I do not have a hovercraft this morning. And I know some of you were probably disappointed by that. <laughs> but I was involved in the decision. And the point is that Moses' dad is not involved in this story. He has no impact. I mean, the man who has the biggest impact on Moses' life at this point probably isn't even his father. It is probably Pharaoh who condemned Moses to death. And what we are seeing here is a specific aspect of ancient Hebrew culture playing out. In ancient Hebrew culture, it was women who primarily played the role of inviting and accepting people into the family. Men were mainly the gatekeepers. They could keep people out, but it was the wives, mothers, and daughters who welcomed people in. Acceptance was viewed as women's work, and so it had to be the Levite woman and the sister and Pharaoh's daughter who carried out God's plan here, and thank God for these women's work, because God had a plan, and he wasn't going to let some cultural definition of gender roles get in the way of his plan. God can use men and women, Jews and Gentiles, children and adults, those who have power and status and those who don't. Amen. And so for the men out there, I have a request. Please don't be a man like Pharaoh who uses his authority to try to thwart God's plan. Please don't be a verse one man like the Levite. Be a man of God who works to make sure that the people who are called to be part of your family know that you accept them, that they are loved, that they are included. Because it's important to realize that God, our Father, goes to great lengths to make his family inclusive. God's family is not some exclusive club that you have to work hard to get into. 
It isn't some elite group that accepts only a few applicants. No, God's family is inclusive. He invites everyone in. The widows and the orphans, the sinners and the saints, the loved and the unlovely. And some of you might say, amen, or preach, brother, on that. But the truth is, the truth is that too often, Christians are known by the people we keep out of church more than the people we invite in. Folks, we serve a mighty God, and he could have used that strength to protect his own family unit and keep sinners out. But instead, he sent his only son, Jesus, his family, to pay the price so that sinners could be accepted into his family too. Sinners like you and me. Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice so that you and I could be accepted as children of God. And if God can do that much for us, well, it seems to me like we ought to be able to do something in response. There are a lot of ways that we can respond. We serve a big God, and he has many ways of doing things. This morning, we're going to talk about a couple specific ways that we can welcome people into our families and make a difference in the lives of the fatherless, like Psalm 68 asks us to. May is National Foster Care Month. Currently, in the United States, there are approximately 424,000 children in foster care. These are children who cannot live with their parents because their parents are unable to care for them. Whatever the specifics of a given family, the need surrounding this issue and the extent of the crisis is immense. So I'm going to read you a clip from a Boston Globe article that was written by a woman named um, Kay Lazar. And I'm going to try really hard to get through it because every time I try to read this article, it gets me. It was around midnight when the 14-year-old boy climbed into the back seat of the state social worker's car last fall, clutching a grocery bag stuffed with what clothes he could grab on the way out of his house. The worker, who had just whisked the boy away from his drug-addicted parents near Worcester, dreaded the youth's inevitable question. What's going to happen to me? The teen asked. The social worker wished he had an answer. Because of a severe shortage of foster families in Massachusetts, He had nowhere to take the teenager. So he began driving laps up and down Route 9, trying to reassure the boy, waiting for a call that an emergency foster home was open. He watched helplessly as an unmistakable look fell over the boy's face. Maybe no one wants me. I read that article and I am not okay because I know that God is not okay with his children being treated like that. And so today we are going to talk about four specific things that we can do to make a difference in the lives of these children. And these are very real and specific things. So I hope you got your notebooks ready. Here we go. Um, Number one, pray. Pray for kids in the foster system and for the system itself. And there is actually a website Um, There's an organization called the Massachusetts Adoption Resource Center. And on that website, 
think the, web, the website is on your screen. Um, on that website are pictures and bios of the kids in Massachusetts who are waiting to be adopted. So you'll read about Khadijah, who hopes she can find a family that won't give up on her. You'll read about Sam, who's looking for someone to play basketball with him. These are very real stories about real kids. Look through them, pray for them by name. Second, support organizations like the Wiley Network. The Wiley Network is an organization that works with kids who are transitioning out of foster care. Because one of the things that happens is that kids transition out when they're 18. It's called aging out. There are services that are offered until the age of 22, but it's not quite as straightforward. So even if a kid in foster care beats all the odds and makes it into college, usually when they get there, they have no safety net, no support system, nowhere to live when there's winter break or spring break. So organizations like the Wiley Network, and I bring up this one because I am familiar with it and it's wonderful and it's Boston-based. They navigate things like financial aid and housing with kids. They have dinners on Christmas Eve so that kids aren't celebrating the holidays by themselves. Um, it's a lovely organization, and particularly if you are a high school teacher or work in a high school or are a college professor, I encourage you to get familiar with these organizations so that you can support kids. Number three, this is, this is a really big one, foster or adopt. And you may decide to foster children temporarily who are working on reunification with their families. Or maybe you decide to permanently welcome a child into your home. There are lots of different possibilities and ways that that can look. Um, you will receive training and support from the Department of Children and Families. And at this point, we want to say that Foster care is part of a racist system. Black children are twice as likely as white children to be put in foster care. And that is not justice. And that is not what God wants. Um, when you foster, I believe that you are not supporting that system. You are supporting the children. Um, so if you feel called to work with the child to be reunited with the family, there is absolutely a kid who needs you right now. And so we encourage you to prayerfully consider fostering or adopting. It is likely to be the hardest and most important thing that you will ever do. Um, in Massachusetts right now, there are 9,600 kids in the foster care system. And there are about 2,800 who are waiting to be adopted. So these are kids that are waiting for their forever family. Um, the last point of support or way to support that I want to talk about this morning is you might be in a place that you are not able to foster or adopt, but you want to come alongside families that do. And that is wonderful. And here are a couple of ways you can do that. Some of them are small. Bring a meal. As you know, a, a family's transitioning with a new kid or even just checking in. How are things going? How are you doing? How can I pray for you? And this is another big one. Get Corey checked through the Department of Children and Families so that you can babysit. Because giving even just that bit of freedom to a new foster family can make a huge difference. So 
If you're, I had to go through these quickly, and if you are interested in getting more information about any of them, please feel free to contact mail at ptspice.org, and we will make sure that you get the information that you are looking for, and that you get connected with the right people. There are a lot of families in our church that are already in the middle of this, so let's do this together, family. Um, as some of you know, our family entered the adoption process to adopt our son, Jordan, in 2016. And we had talked about adoption for years. And we thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll go to the training and see what we think and check it out. The training was heart-wrenching. There were all kinds of people in our class, single women, single men, married couples with kids, married couples with no kids, so if you're sitting there thinking, oh, I could never do this, I'm single, or I don't own my own home, or whatever the thing, like, there aren't very many qualifications like that. You need to be able to provide a safe place for a child. So the training was 40 hours. <laughs> I can tell you that by the end, we were just ready to throw open the doors and let them all come. So, but in all seriousness, it opened our eyes to a segment of population that is often forgot about. These are kids who, through no fault of their own, have experienced trauma and now are looking for a soft place to land. Sometimes that is a temporary place while mom and dad get things worked out. And sometimes that is a permanent or forever family. Um, basically, kids are waiting for people to say, I, I see you and you matter. So Jordan joined our family a couple of weeks after he turned five. And he has brought so much life, love, and energy into our home. This morning, Jordan, I'm really sorry because this might embarrass you, but he was belting, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here while he was showering. And it was just the, the most lovely thing. But anyway, um, Jordan's biological mother loves him very much, but she is unable to care for him. He was also fortunate because for the about three years that he was in foster care before coming to our, to our family, he was with primarily one foster family. A lot of, um, a lot of kids are shuffled around, um, but he was generally with one family. Yes, you can, well, I'll get to that picture in just a second, but you can see him right there. So his foster, his foster mother once told me, I just prayed and prayed that God would put him with the right family. So it's been a, a really lovely experience of getting to know them. We see his biological mother a couple of times a year. We, before the pandemic, we saw the foster family about monthly. We're still in contact with them regularly because they're very important people in, in Jordan's life. So the picture that had just been up there was actually a picture of Jordan in the courthouse on the day that his adoption was official. Um, that was the day that we became a forever family. So a few weeks ago, Jordan was baptized. We went to PT North. He came up, gave his testimony, was dunked by Elder Roy, the whole thing. And in his testimony, Jordan shared that part of the reason he wanted to be baptized was because he wanted to be part of God's forever family. For Jordan, that is no trite phrase because he, probably better than most of us, understands the importance and power of unconditional love. Amen. So let's give God some praise for that, uh, for Amen. Jordan. He's...
And so God's family is about A, acceptance, and it's also about B, belonging. Belonging is the flip side of acceptance. It's acceptance viewed from the inside. So acceptance is Elisa saying, Troy, I accept you. And belonging is me saying, I feel accepted. Now, a sense of belonging doesn't necessarily come easily in family. I am guessing that Moses struggled throughout most of his early life with feeling like he didn't belong in either of the cultures that were part of his family. He didn't look like Pharaoh's daughter or the other members of her family. He looked like a Hebrew. But he didn't dress like the hero, Hebrews. He, did, he wasn't a slave like the other Hebrews. Indeed, he ate his meals and slept in a house with the very people who were enslaving his brothers and sisters. He was a misfit no matter where he went, and he probably struggled to know where he belonged. But he did have one thing, the one thing that ultimately creates a sense of belonging in family. He had love. His mother hid him as long as she could. Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on him. His sister watched over him. His mother nursed him. These women loved him. And ultimately, it is that love that, gives him, that gave him a sense of belonging. And it's the same with God's love for us. He puts up no barriers to entry into his family. He accepts us just as we are. And if we embrace that acceptance, that love... Being part of God's family creates a profound sense of belonging. Because at a most basic level, we belong to God. Isn't that what we sang this morning? It all belongs to you, my heart, my mind, my life, my soul. It all belongs to you. We have always belonged to him. And, and he, he said it through the prophet Isaiah. He said, do not be afraid. I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Or the apostle Peter who wrote, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Make no mistake. You belong to God. You might feel as if you have been abandoned in a basket, crying out for someone to help, but all the while God has been standing on the shore watching over you because you belong to God. You might be under a death sentence, but God has already sent someone to ransom you because you belong to God. You might feel separated from your family and the ones that you love, but let me tell you that nothing can separate us from the family of God because you belong to God. You might feel like a failure, hopeless and helpless, but let me tell you that God is ready to change your name, to draw you out of the mess that you are in because you belong to God. You might feel alone and adrift in isolation, but God has already commenced the rescue operation for you because you belong and ain't no Pharaoh, ain't no devil, ain't no pandemic that can take you out of his hand. You see, folks, we serve a God 
who tells a parable about a shepherd who had a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away. And he leaves the 99 to go search for the one because that sheep is part of his flock. That sheep belongs to him. God pursues us. He comes after us. He tracks us down because we belong in his family. And you... And, it might, and it is a belonging that is unlike anything else we can experience. You might find belonging in many places in your life. You know, at school, with friends, with your biological family, in a social movement. But you will never find belonging in any of those places that compares to the sense of belonging that you ha- can have being part of God's family. Because before any of those other things, we belong to him first. But sometimes we are our own worst enemies when it comes to belonging. We get these preconceived notions in our head. If I just achieve this, if I just work through this, then I'll really belong to God's family. But that's not true. You don't earn your way into God's family. There is nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less than he does right now. Nothing you can do that will make God love you any more or any less than he does right now. And actually, God has used Jordan's adoption to teach us and our family about what it really means to be loved in God's family. Sometimes Jordan wonders if he really belongs in our family. He doubts his place. In fact, last month, he told his babysitter that he was afraid he would have to go live with another family. It kills us that he does not fully grasp that our love for him is unconditional and that we would never give him up. But I wonder if sometimes that's how God feels. All God wants to do is love us but we are fixated on how we don't measure up or how we don't belong. And God just wants to love us. So we can also do the same thing with our families. We think, well, I don't know if God can really use my family. We have these ideas about what families are supposed to look like and certainly how families are supposed to act if God's gonna use them. But I wanna push back against that too. Look at the families in the Bible. Moses' family, we've talked about today. Even Jesus' family. Mary was pregnant when she married Joseph. Not conventional. Additionally, even as Jesus hung on the cross, in the book of John, it says he looked at his mother and his disciple, and he said, you need to be family now. Jesus was reconfiguring family until his last minutes. So please don't limit what you think God can do because your family looks different than other families might look. All of us as individuals belong to God and all of our families are part of God's plan. Okay, so so far we've talked about acceptance, that we accept other people into our families. We've talked about belonging, that we all belong to God and that we are his. 
And now we want to talk about community. Because family is not just about blood. It's about community. I mean, how many of you have aunties or uncles that you're not actually related to by blood? Or maybe godparents or godchildren. Shout out to our goddaughter, Lexi Handy. Lexi! So the reason we have these family groups is primarily to provide a sense of community for family members, a place where we can be seen and known. Sometimes, as we saw in Moses' family, they're complicated. Being part of a community changes us. Changes us as individuals, and it also changes us as a collective. Let's look at our scripture, at the changes that took place in the people that were involved. Moses' mother became a nursemaid. She went from being an unpaid slave to receiving wages. The truth is, in a lot of ways, she lost her son. But she gained freedom, eventually, for her children and all of her descendants. Pharaoh's daughter became a mother and grew in compassion for the Hebrew people. Moses learned to read and write and understand Egyptian culture in a way he would not have if he had not been fostered in Pharaoh's house. And his sister learned that she had an important role to play, a role that would carry her through her life as she helped the slaves escape from Egypt. So we can say the same about our personal experiences and how we've been changed. Honestly, some of the change is hard. When Jordan moved into our home, it was a major shift for all of us. And it wasn't just a shift in our household. It was a shift in our family and community. Because our family now included a biological mother, a large foster family, multiple siblings, and there was, and still sometimes is, pain and insecurity as we learned to navigate what it means to be part of this new family and community. However, God showed up as he always does. We saw how he knitted us together. We saw how we grew in compassion, sometimes through hard conversations. We learned to depend on him more because we were not enough. And that was very clear. Um, And we also saw how he was growing us to experience him in new ways. And in practice, that's a lot of what being part of God's family means. God's family is community. It's a new set of relationships. A new relationship to the father and a new relationship to the son. And being part of that community will change us. Like Moses, it will change our name, our destiny. You see, in being adopted, Moses became part of two communities. He was part of the community of the Hebrews and also part of the community of the Egyptians. And having access to both of those communities put him in a position to set the Hebrews free. And it's the same with us. When we are adopted by God, we become part of two families, our natural family and our spiritual family. 
And having access to both of those communities puts us in a position to be able to set people free. Amen. Come on now, that's a bad word. Amen. You see, joining God's family doesn't mean that you leave behind all the old relationships you had. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean you just say, peace out to all the people that you used to be friends with. God isn't taking you out of your old community because he puts you there for a reason. He has a plan for you. He always had a plan for you. He doesn't want to take you out of your old community. He just wants to welcome you into a new community also. Community with him. And folks, being in community with God's family gives us access to new resources in the spirit. Things that we would not have had otherwise. The Holy Spirit can set us free, release us from burdens, cancel debts, empower us to good works, reveal things that our human minds could never comprehend. And because we have dual membership in these two communities, we are in a unique position to connect our natural communities with the resources that we have in God. Because being in community with God changes who we are. Indeed, that is one of the main things that draws us into God's family in the first place, the realization that we need change. That the person we are right now is not the person that we were meant to be. And God foresaw that need. And out of his own family, he provided for us the means to change. You see, our sins create a separation between us and God. But God loved us so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to earth to die for our sins, to bridge that separation between us and God so that we could become the Father's children. Jesus shed his blood so that we might become blood relatives of the Father, that we might have full, unhindered community with God. But that wasn't the end of the story, because Jesus was crucified. He was wrapped in grave clothes and buried, and on the third day, he rose. He rose so that we might see that we can have eternal life with him, that God's family is truly our forever family. And it may be that you are listening right now, and you've never made the commitment to be part of God's forever family. You've never accepted the sacrifice that Jesus made for you. You've never given your life to Christ. And if that is you, I want to let you know that you can make that commitment right now. The commitment to invite Jesus into your heart and become a child of God. All you need to do is ask. And so if that is you, I would just invite you to say a short prayer with me right now. It's a very simple prayer, inviting Jesus into your heart and accepting him as your Lord. So just join with me, say after me this simple prayer. God... I come to you right now, and I admit, Lord, that I am a sinner. But Father, 
I know that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. Jesus, come into my heart, come into my mind, cleanse me from my sin. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Father, I thank you that right now I know that I am your child forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer this morning, we celebrate with you. And we invite you to let us know. There's an email address that will come up on the screen so that we can continue to walk alongside you in your journey. And no matter where we are in our journey, um, I'm going to, I would like to pray for all of us because we're all at different places as we continue to draw closer to God. So please pray with me today. God, we thank you that you are a God of love who created us in love and desires to welcome us into your family. We thank you that you want us all to belong. And God, we ask that you show us how to be inviting others and accepting others into our family. God, we know that you are not just a God of me and mine, but that you are expansive and you want your family to include so many. God, help us not to overlook or to forget, but help us to have eyes to see those who have been pushed aside or left alone, God, and welcome them into our families and into our church family. God, I pray a special prayer today for families who are training to or have adopted or fostered kids, God. That is a challenge that is full of love and full of struggle. And God, I pray that you come alongside those families, bring them encouragement when they need it, bring them resources when they need them, knit these new family structures together. God, we know that you are a God of family and that you celebrate these families. And we ask that you are just over all of them. And lastly, God, I come to you today with the foster care system and all of the kids that are in it. And God, I confess that it is so big that part of me doesn't even know what to pray. But I know and I believe that you are a big God. And so I lift all of these children to you, God. I ask that you are present to them. I ask that you are building them up and drawing them closer to you, God. Be their rock, be their protector, be their strength, God. Come alongside each of them and help them to know that they are loved and seen and not forgotten. God, we thank you that in you, there are no orphans. That every one of us is loved by you no matter what we have done or what we will do, God, that you embrace us. And I pray that you help us to rest in that love. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
We praise God for his word. Amen. Can we give God praise for his word? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. And thank you, Troy and Elisa, for that powerful word. And thank those of you in our congregation. There are so many people, I'm not even going to mention their names, who have um, either opened their homes up to be foster parents or have actually adopted uh, children. And I guess one of the powerful things about being at Jordan's uh, baptism, Jordan's my guy, uh, is that I wonder if Jordan was not adopted by Troy and Elisa, would he have even come to know Jesus Christ? So we're just grateful that um, God is continually building up this church, this community, with people who will probably never see themselves as part of this community. So let's continue to pray. Thank you so much. I'll never forget those words. Acceptance, belonging, and community. Family matters. Uh, let's, if you can bow your heads and put out your hands. We end our services not with a prayer, but a blessing. You say, how do I put out my hands? You put your hands out with your palms facing upward as an act of faith that James is right. In James chapter 1 verse 17 when he says, Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variableness, neither shift in shadows. He just wants to bless you with his love. And so may the Lord bless you and protect you. May he look after you, shield you, defend you, and take care of you. May the Lord make his face shine, grant a beam, and show his pleasure on you. May the Lord be gracious, kind-hearted, pleasant, and compassionate to you. May the Lord show you his favor that will promote you appreciate you, not depreciate you, support you and side with you as you side with him. And finally, may the Lord give you his shalom, his peace, his rest, his rest. May he allow you to enter into his rest. May you rest so that God can do the rest. And may the Lord give you his calmness, his harmony, his composure, his prosperity, in his success, may the Lord remove anything and everything that causes agitation and discord with his divine purpose and destiny for your life. I bless you. Yes, I bless you. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and everybody in this room and out there say, I receive that blessing. Have a fantastic week. God bless you. The best is yet to come.
Thank you.